to UMFM 101.5 at Winnipeg, Manitoba. The lines are now open at 269-8636. And welcome to the program. I'm your host, George Rideout. And uh, doing the soundboard, as always, is Lynn. I kind of mess that up. How many times do I do that where I actually mess up my intro? Uh, you're listening to Sacred Space or CJUM 101.5 FM at Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Kind of doing it backwards this morning. I guess it's because it's a backwards day today. Pretty hazy out there this morning. Not a whole lot of visibility driving into the station. And we are in the station, so at any time as we uh, play what we're going to play here, give us a shout at 269-8636 and let us know what's on your mind and how you're liking the show today. Well, it's kind of a, uh, I don't know, how would you say it, a heavy heart kind of show, but a good heavy heart in a way. We we lost a huge um, persona and person uh, in late August in the, um, I hate to use that self-care thing, but uh, um, he was a big, uh, 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 I would almost say leader in that, uh, lots of, uh, uh, you know, I think 40 plus books and all kinds of things. Well, maybe I'll just do a little short introduction and get to, to where we're going. Um, affectionately called the father of motivation by his fans, Dr. Wayne Dyer was an internationally renowned author, speaker, and pioneer in the field of self-development. Over the four decades of his career, he wrote more than 40 books, 21 of which became New York Times bestsellers. He created numerous audio programs and videos and appeared on thousands of television and radio shows. Here's just a, a few of his books. Uh, Manifest Your Destiny, Wisdom of the Ages, There's a Spiritual Solution to Every Problem, and a New York Times bestseller, Ten Secrets for Success and Inner Peace, The Power of Intention, Inspiration, Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life, Excuses Be Gone, Wishes Fulfilled, and uh, I think this, this last one was kind of his, uh, his memoirs called I Can See Clearly Now. And they are, those uh, ones that I listed were all featured as national public television specials. Wayne held a doctorate in educational counseling from Wayne State University and was an associate professor at St. John's University in New York and honored a lifetime commitment to learning and finding the higher self. In late August of 2015, he left his body, returning to Infinite Source to embark on his next adventure. And we here at Sacred Space simply want to uh, thank you, Wayne, for your dedication to the evolved being and good journeys, mate, wherever you are. Uh, may we all become awakened. And without further ado, and I just think this one really fits here, here is Wayne Dyer's The Awakened Life. Enjoy. 
The fact is that most of us in our culture define who we are and how well we're doing and even our very humanity on the basis of some very artificial criteria. Those criteria most of the time are considered by people in our culture to be the ultimate. And they are things like success, how much success do I have, that is, how much money am I making, how much stuff comes into my life, how many accumulations am I able to get, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But as a criteria for your very humanity, it's a very low point, it's a very shallow place to determine whether or not you're living the kind of life that you're capable of living. Another one is performance, which we tend to laud in our culture and to almost worship. I'm number one. You see it all the time, people making a contest out of life and performance being measured in terms of uh, how far I get and what position I achieve in life or what awards I have granted to me or whatever. And the other is achievement. How far have I gone in my profession? How am I looked at by my peers and by other people in terms of my grades and uh, my position on the ladder of success within a given corporation, things like that. These are almost like the ultimate in our culture, in the business world, in the educational world, in, uh, in the entertainment world, whatever. We're always talking about success, achievement, and performance. What has happened for me, and what has happened for a lot of people, particularly in the, some of my recent books and tapes and so on, is that after you live this life, for a while and you find yourself achieving a lot of things and performing at a very high level and being labeled a success by all of the external standards, you soon discover that there's an emptiness to that, that there's more to life than just being able to do that. That emptiness and that shallow feeling and that it's just sort of almost like a selfish pursuit of gratifying one's ego and proving that we can accumulate as much stuff as we can and success isn't any longer measured in terms of how we serve others but in terms of how much I get for myself and our goals become obsessions not that we need any more but that we've fallen into this trap of believing that we have to accumulate more we have to get more we have to perform at a higher level if we win the uh, championship that's great but how about doing it two times in a row <laughs> nobody's ever done that before and if we do it twice in a row well now we've got to do it three times in a row and now we have to do it by shutting out our opponents completely they can never get a point and we are constantly looking outside of ourselves for uh, these kinds of almost artificial ways of defining ourselves as human beings. And when you get trapped into that, you find that there's a lack of a sense of fulfillment. And what I want to talk about and make happen in this program is to have people ask the question, what would it be like to live your life as a work of art? A work of art that's in progress. That is, your life becomes a masterpiece that is unfolding in every moment of your life. Instead of looking at it in terms of how much can I get or how far can I go, begin to see that, all right, yes, I am capable of lots and lots of, uh, of wonderful things, and I have accumulated a lot of things, and I've achieved at a very high level, and I'm performing very well, but I want to take a different perspective on what my life is. And I want to begin to see my life as this fabulous work of art that I can shape it and shade it and mold it into whatever it is that I think would be the absolute ideal 
for my contribution while I'm here on this planet, for the actual unfolding of my humanity. And if you were to ask anybody, what is it that you would really like to have said about yourself, whose life would you uh, look at and say, this is what I would like to have uh, been said about me? Or this is the masterpiece that I would like my life to be. Would it be about how much stuff did I get? Or how big was my bank account? Or, or how fast did I run? Or how quickly did I get there? Or who did I beat in the process? For some, it might be, and that might be very satisfying. But on a very high, a much higher level than that, the answer to that question for me is in looking at the lives of people like Christ who was perhaps the most influential person ever to live on our planet, ever to be on our planet. Mohammed, Buddha, spiritual masters who were leaving a message about the power of the human mind. More recently in our times, people like Gandhi, who was able to turn around the whole fate of a nation that had been subservient to an empire, the British Empire, all through a nonviolence and all through a, uh, an approach to loving people and not making conflict something that has to be debilitating or destructive and to literally put them on a course of running their own lives, all through simplicity and all through a sense of beauty and appreciation. Or Mother Teresa, who labors in the streets of Calcutta, just serving and just giving and knows what she is for and knows that she's not against anything. You see... The irony, there's a real irony in all of this, and, and I'm not here to put down, in any sense of the word, success and performance and achievement. I'm a person who has a lot of all of those things in my life. But I've found that those are the kinds of things that begin to matter less and less, and they show up more and more in your life when you find yourself getting more tuned in to something much beyond all of that. It's like a knowingness. It's like creating a sense of what I'm here for, how I'm going to live this life that I have, and doing it in the service of others, maintaining a sense of spirituality about yourself, maintaining a sense of compassion and caring and love and decency for uh, everyone that you meet, treating conflict and difficulties that come your way not as something for which you have to win or to master but in fact as opportunities for you to see how you can transcend these things and not to have to use hatred and, and anger and bitterness and beating somebody else down in order to get to this higher place it's very much a place of peace and it doesn't mean like abdicating your role in life. It doesn't mean that you can no longer be an architect or that you can't be a salesman or whatever it is that you choose to do for a living. It has, it's much beyond that. It's the way that you are, not what you're getting out of the way that you are. It's that wonderful work of art that your life becomes, that you begin to see that I can make my life unfold exactly the way the universe unfolds, with a real sense of perfection and harmony and peace for myself. And the more I do that, the paradox is that all of the things that I chased after so, so hard and so diligently show up in your life just the right amounts. It's an attitude of knowing, of surrendering, not to anyone, but surrendering from the things that most of us are pursuing all of our lives, where we get on that stress-filled, fast pace, I have to achieve, I have to perform, I have to succeed, I have to become number one, I have to beat everybody else in order to prove myself. 
you begin to develop an inner sense of harmony that those kinds of things are very low-level determiners of what kind of a human being you're going to be. It's like after a while when you read this and you study it and you write about it and you start to experience it for yourself, you start to really go there like in a new kind of prayer, not a prayer that is to someone to do things and help the lions win this Sunday or whatever. It isn't that kind of a, uh, a prayer at all. And you begin to experience it and all of a sudden you start saying, you know, what these people have been saying for centuries is true. <laughs> I mean, it's really true. That's the first experience I ever had with that. It was just alarming. My sister-in-law, Marilyn, was driving on the Lodge Freeway in Detroit with her husband, my brother, and their three children in the back seat. Now, she is a hardcore, linear, left-brain skeptic, okay? Worse than any banker could ever be, all right? <laughs> and any accountant, all right? I mean... You had to show me. Otherwise, it doesn't exist for her. Medicine was her model. Anything that has to do with the mind, very skeptical. This car jumped the guardrail on the other side, on the southbound line, and landed right in her face at 60 miles an hour. She saw the wheels coming and land right there. Every bone in her face was broken. Her kidneys were punctured. She had internal bleeding and was in intensive care for 13 weeks. They took her into the hospital unconscious. And no one thought that she was going to survive the night. She was really in bad shape. And they performed surgery on her for 14 hours. And there was a team of surgeons, six of them, and they were talking during the surgery. As you can imagine, for 14 hours, you would be talking. My sister-in-law reported to me in 1971, when I was 31 years old, and just sort of starting on this path, that she watched the entire surgery. She said, Wayne, you're the only person, you're the only weird one in the family. Uh -huh. And you're weird enough to believe this, you know. And it's true, I am, because when I even worked with the mental patients and doing my postdoctoral stuff, they all got together on my birthday. And they, I mean, these were the real hard, these were people who thought they were Napoleon and were really convinced, you know. And, and they all got together and they gave me a briefcase for my birthday. And I said, you know, you really shouldn't have done this. And they said, oh, we like you better than all the other doctors. I said, really, why? And one woman said, well, she said, you're more like one of us. You know, I said... <laughs> So anyway, Marilyn said to me, Wayne, she said, what happened is that I left my body. And she said, I went up to the corner of the room. I was surrounded by this light, and I was in the presence of God. It was like a consciousness. It was like, I can't describe it because it doesn't have boundaries. It didn't have form, but it was a magnificent light. And I was there, and there was this tunnel. And I could have gone through this tunnel, and I had the choice, and it was so peaceful, and it felt so good. It was the most blissful I've ever been in my life. And she said, and I watched the surgeons performing on me, and I watched them working on my body, knowing that that wasn't me. 
when she came out of it after 14 hours of surgery, there were two of the surgeons, they were voting on whether they should continue this or not or whether they should just pull the plug. She had very little heartbeat at all, and she was so badly punctured internally, and her bleeding was so bad, and there was infection and so on. That they just didn't think she would, and if she did survive, they thought it was. So two of them were saying, let's just give up on this, you know, and go on to other people. The four doctors prevailed who said that we really believe that we can save this person. And Marilyn then made it. She had three little children. My two nephews and one niece were in the backseat. They were just little children at the time, two, four, and five. And Marilyn decided that she could re-enter even though it was painful and didn't want to do it. She was given, it's like given the choice. <laughs> and she went back. And when she came out of it, she told the surgeons which ones had said, let's give up on it, and which ones had said... Let's stay with it. And she had gave them word for word what they had said in this event. And she said, it was at that time that I became really, truly aware. And she said, since then, she has gotten to meet some of what they call NDEers, near-death experiences. And that everybody who has this near-death experience, Raymond Moody writes about it, has the same thing to report. And that is that when they come back, and they do it reluctantly, they have what we call the big picture. <laughs> and since then, I mean, you wouldn't believe my sister-in-law. She is the calmest, most loving, easiest going. You can't get to her. <laughs> you can't get to her. She has an inner candle flame that never flickers, though the worst goes before her. And the worst is my brother. <laughs> And he goes before her all the time. And he's very linear. He's an insurance judge. He's a wonderful, loving, beautiful person. All of his stuff is motivated out of caring and concern. He wants to always, but he wants to do so damn much that it becomes like, all right, enough. I got the map. All right, yeah, but do you know which turn to make? Yeah, I know. And it's a half an hour of that kind of thing. And she just sits there and just reads. And, and when there's a family squabble and people get themselves all upset, she just picks up a book and just excuses herself. And she goes over into the corner and the kids say, you know, when someone will be around, their friends, they'll say, what, what's with your mom? She, and they all say, oh, she's got the big picture. <laughs> it's like having the big picture. <laughs> and these people, all of them report when they come back from that, they have this, like, near-death experience. It's like tension and stress and anxiety and fear and all of that stuff that occupies so much of our lives is just gone. It's just not a part of the consciousness any longer. My suggestion is that we don't have to have that kind of traumatic event happen to our form to understand the universal principles and to surrender to them and to make them work every day in our life. That we don't have to go there. That we can unmuddle all of this metaphysical psychobabble jargons kind of stuff and begin to live the spiritual life and have the understanding that we are truly spiritual beings having a human experience and that the quality of that human experience is only available to us through our thoughts through our mind through our divine connection and that whatever your religious belief whatever label you place on yourself try not to think of yourself as Christian try to be Christ-like <laughs> And you'll know what I'm talking about. Try not to think of yourself as Jewish, but be Jehovah-like, or Buddha-like, or Muhammad-like. 
These were not people who were asking anyone to deify idols and wooden deities and, uh, and an orthodoxy. But instead we're talking about kindness and love and forgiveness and gentleness and spirit and that we're all connected and you begin to live that way. And it's really quite an easy thing to do. just depends on where you are in your path. Some people need that. Like some people who are alcoholics or drug abusers continue to drink and continue to use drugs knowing that if their life was threatened they would stop and knowing that they have the strength to stop at any time but being unwilling to do it because they don't feel that the threat to their life is there. And then the threat comes. They go to the doctor, they go in for a physical, they find out that they've got a lump on their lungs, they find out that their wife is going to leave them because they're abusing drugs all the time, they're going to lose their family, and they come home one day and their family is gone. Or whatever. And, and that's like a near-death experience emotionally, to lose your family or to find out that you've got lung cancer or whatever and they instantly become transformed. Now, what does it take to get people to get the big picture? Or what does it take to get people to change? The answer to that is different for everybody. I can't pretend to say that I have an answer. There are some people who need, for example, to change, they need a support group, and they need a therapist, and they need to go to a rehabilitation center, and they need to read 400 books, and they need to listen to these kinds of tapes, and they need to reinforce it over and over and over again in their lives in order to change. And that's the way some people are, are wired together. <laughs> and that's all fine. And if that's how your internal circuitry works, then by all means, go with it. I, on the other hand, am not that kind of a person. I make decisions instantaneously about what my life is going to be or not going to be. When I was a young boy, I tasted coffee. I had a cup of coffee that was given to me. I was about 14 or 15 years old. I tasted it. It was bitter. It tasted funny. It tasted like chemicals that I didn't want to. And I said to my mother and my brothers, I will never drink coffee in my life. Now, that was, I'm 49 years old now, okay? That was uh, many, many years ago. It was 35 years ago. And I tasted it knew it, and made that declaration, and I have never had a cup of coffee since then. I look at the coffee, people offer it to me and everything, and I just know that I don't want that bitter taste in my mouth, and I don't want that caffeine, and I know that, all right? So that's how I am able to make change. But that doesn't mean that that's the right way, and that's the best way. And I can sit here with great confidence and say that I'll, I won't be drinking coffee, and I'll never have a cigarette. I can say that for certain, having quit 25 years ago. And I can say for certain about a lot of things in my life, that I won't be overweight, that I will stay in shape, and all of those kinds of things. For others, it's a daily struggle, and it's like it's coming to know yourself. So the path to the big picture is different for everyone. But the understanding has to be that the big picture is there, and its availability is there. And if you need to have a near-death experience, like Marilyn did, in order to get that big picture and be able to relax in the face of conflict, 
be able to not allow yourself to get stressed out over small things, being able to enjoy your present moments and find fulfillment and joy in them, then have that near-death experience, but have it in your mind only. Okay? So create that experience for yourself. One of the ways to do that is through meditation. Another way to do that is just by visualizing or just imaging it for yourself. Participate in your own funeral, in your mind, if you have to. See yourself dying of, uh, of, of a horrible disease and suffering. Go through it. Experience it. Die while you're alive. Experience that whole thing. And as you experience that, see for yourself that this doesn't have to be brought into form. That I can act it out in my mind like a dream, live through it, get the experience of it, and then decide, well, I don't have to bring this into my form any longer. And make then a decision not to do it. So whatever it takes for you, all I'm saying is that you don't have to go through it in the world of form, in your physical world, you can transform, go beyond your form. You can be metaphysical, go beyond the physical, experience it in your mind where there are no limits. There's no limits to your imagination. There's no limits to your thoughts. But literally be there. And then when you come out of it, realize that, okay, that's enough. I've done that now. Let me practice the big picture. Let me see it isn't anything that I have to really create in my life any more than that. And once you're able to do that, once you can create that for yourself, then you get all the benefits of the big picture. By the big picture, I mean you know in your heart and in your soul that there's more to life than just what my body is going through. And you know that there's nothing worth getting yourself all bogged down about and getting all depressed about and all worked up about. You know it all. You see all of that. And everything that I'm doing to create that, like Marilyn, I'm always amazed at Marilyn, how she's able to just let all of that stuff just float by her. When the kids have this particular part, when my brother gets on her about that, or when things aren't going, it's, uh, how she just sort of calmly, and ever since that accident, has calmly just gone off in a corner and just sort of let it all work itself out. It's part of the surrendering process. When we take this power of this invisible part of us, it's so hard to define this. We call it a belief, or you call it a thought, or you call it your soul, or, or your spirit, or whatever. But that invisible part of you that really determines everything about your life. And you begin to say to yourself, right, how can I apply the awareness of these thoughts and how I use my mind to make my life all that I want it to be? to bring into my life the things that are important to me, to improve the quality of my relationships, to, to have the success and so on that I think that I'm entitled to. And it's really getting to the point where you know that every thought that you have has a uh, potential for coming into your life, for coming into form. You start to get real, 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 real cautious about having anything in your mind that isn't going to work for you. And you begin to question why you would keep any of those thoughts in you. I can remember one story of a woman who came to me one time and told me how miserable she was, that she was married to a drunk, 
And I said, well, what, what's wrong? And she said, well, he slurs his words and he uh, repeats himself and he smells bad and it's just awful to be around him. And I said, let's see if I understand. Let's see who's crazy in this little scenario you've just described. Now, you said you've married to a drunk. And the drunk slurs his words and, uh, and he repeats himself and he smells bad and he sounds foolish. I said, that's every drunk I've ever known does exactly that. We got a drunk who's acting and doing everything that you would expect a drunk to do. Now we got you. And you're married to someone that you call a drunk and you're expecting him to be sober. You know? Now who's crazy? The drunk who's doing what he's supposed to? Or you who's expecting someone who is what you've defined them to be to be something different than what they are? He is what he is. And why would you want to entertain, why would you want to keep thoughts in your mind that are making you miserable, which is going to expand misery for you in your life, by just having those thoughts there. Why not change around those thoughts and tell yourself that you're, like if you argue for your misery, then the only thing you're going to get is your misery. You, you have to get that, and you're arguing for it all the time. You're going around talking about how miserable you are. So you want to get real careful about that. And I suggest to every one of you that whatever it is you find yourself incapable of doing, or whatever you found that has been a great obstacle, or whatever it is that's in a relationship that isn't working, that uh, you just can't seem to transcend, or whatever's going on with a particular employee or a way that you're approaching anything in your business, that if you examine, just for a moment, if you examine what belief is it that supports this behavior, because the ancestor to every action is a belief, is a thought, and then work at re-examining that. I mean, I've done that so many times in my own life, and things that don't seem like they're that important to other people, like my wife doesn't understand why certain things about my tennis game that I play every day that I've really challenged. I mean, I had grew up with the belief that I couldn't hit a backhand. And it was for 10 years I told myself that I don't have a backhand, I can't hit a backhand. And then I began to change that belief around. And it wasn't that I just, you know, practice, practice, practice. I began to visualize myself doing all the things that it takes to make a backhand work for myself. I began to do that with a serve. I began to do that with a drop shot. Instead of telling myself, I can't hit a drop shot, and then acting out on that, and a whole match will go by, and a whole year will go by, and I'll never hit a drop shot, or I'll never hit a lob, or I'll never try a spin serve, or whatever. If you keep telling yourself that you can't do something, you act on that belief, and whether it's just a silly little thing like improving your tennis game, which isn't so silly if you're making your living off of it or if you're coaching it, <laughs> or any other skill area, or anything in your life. Change around the thought, as you think, so shall you be. Years ago, my wife and I were going through some personal difficulties. We were making a decision about whether or not we were going to stay together, very frankly. Everybody in a relationship, I believe, has these moments and times when there's a struggle there and you've been together for a while and you're, you're not certain whether this is the right path and you're thinking about these things and so on. And it was, nevertheless, it was a very difficult time emotionally for both of us. And I can remember years and years ago, as we were going through this, what it did for me to be in that state. I became much more loving. I became much more concerned with other people. I became less concerned with the pettiness of so many things that you find yourself worked up about because I had a, like a different focus in my life. And I can remember thinking as we resolved it and got back closer together, and today are very close and very loving together, 
looking back on that time as like something that I had to go through at that time. And that what it did is it helped me to see how absurd it is for us to be focused on the minutia of life. Whether or not the walls are clean, or whether or not the toys are put away, or whether or not your food is prepared on time, or whether somebody is late with something, or whether the phone doesn't ring or does ring or whatever. Like all of those things are so minute in contrast to what you're really struggling with. And then what it also helped me to do in terms of getting this big picture was to look at some of the things that other people were going through, some of the problems and difficulties that they were having. Very often when something goes wrong in somebody else's life that we're close to, one of our parents gets ill. There's an accident of some kind. When Marilyn had that accident, I can remember uh, how it affected me. And it gives you pause to remind yourself that you have a lot to be thankful for and that you have a very powerful mind here that can make anything happen that you want to happen as long as you keep yourself centered or keep yourself focused. I was able to shift from all of those petty little things. I can remember I was doing a show out in Seattle at that time that I was going through that tough period. And somebody asked me a question that six months before I would have answered sort of flippantly sort of smart-alecky. It just it wouldn't have given it the attention that it deserved. I would have thought of it as perhaps too trivial. And I can remember looking into the woman's eyes who asked me the show. I was on a TV show out there in Seattle. And thinking, because I was struggling at that time, I became much more compassionate towards this person, much more tuned into the pain that they were feeling, even though it seemed trivial in comparison to what I was. And it allowed me to get to be more loving. And then I look back on that now, and I think, well, that's what I had to learn. <laughs> That's what it was for, that there's a purpose in everything, and that perhaps one of the things that I had to learn eight or ten years ago was how to be more compassionate. And perhaps the only way I was going to learn how to be more compassionate was to have to go through some of this stuff myself. So, like, you can do that. You can do that now in your own life. Know that there's a lesson in this for you. Know that there are no accidents in this perfect universe. And know that the deep troubles that you may be experiencing or, or may, may be hard for have something in them for you. And that there's a secondary purpose to them. And if it does help you to slow down, and if it does help you to get a bigger picture, and it does help you to be more compassionate and more loving towards other people, then what you do is you begin to bless those things that are in your own life as offering you an opportunity to transcend them. And once you've transcended them, then you don't have to go back to that again. And for sure, my wife and I do not have to go back to ever doubting whether we want to make it and whether we want our family to stay intact and whether we want to stay loving and so on. We don't ever have to question that again. We've been there, and we both learned how to look within. And when you do look within, to be grateful for what this person is offering you. So that every time I think about my wife behaving in a way that I don't like or vice versa, we've learned how to zip it, <laughs> you know, how to, how to just not make ourselves miserable by saying things and by doing things that will just create more difficulties. Because we've been on the edge. We've been to that edge, and we've looked over the edge and seen what it's like to maybe have to raise a family as a single parents or whatever and to be without each other. And now we're a tremendous source of strength to each other instead of looking for the things that we don't like. So the... The way to the big picture often is through seeing the problems in your own life from a different perspective and seeing how difficult other people have it, you know. When you're wondering about how troubled you are, look at the Alzheimer's patient whose mind is slowly slipping away from them and they even are aware that it's happening and they don't know what to do about it. 
Are you coming up here on the airplane yesterday? There was a story in the paper of a man and his wife who just got so desperate that they had to call the police. They have four children, four little children under the age of six, just like I do. And they had to call the police because they didn't want to raise them homeless. They didn't want their children because they were being evicted from the final hotel because they had raised their rent from $160 a week to 210 and they just simply didn't have it. And rather than put their children out on the street, they called the police and asked the Department of Human Resources to come and keep their children for them for a while until they could get themselves back together. And I thought, my goodness, I mean, uh, what kind of problems of mine could even be anything near what it must be like to be faced with the idea of having to go out on the street with my children, my little babies. And these were little babies. One one, one was three, one was four, and one was five. Just tiny little children to be out on the streets, on the cold streets. And I made a commitment that I was going to contact them when I get back and try to get them something. And other people are, are helping them as well. But it also gives you time to get the bigger picture, <laughs> you know, when you see things like that. It's a good thing to remember. Another thing is that in order to get this bigger picture and get to this place, that you can stop feeling sorry for yourself. You can stop the self-pity because it's happening for You've got to trust. You've got to surrender. You've got to know that what's coming your way has a purpose in it, has a lesson in it, that there's order in chaos. And underneath that chaos, you've got to look for that order and look for that blessing. And so one of the things you might have to learn is how to get off of pity and feeling sorry for yourself. And one of the ways to do that is to start focusing on doing something new, doing something different, keeping yourself occupied. Marilyn would go to her knitting. I found myself getting more wrapped up in giving talks because my talks improved, literally improved when I was going through that struggle. And so did my writing because I was just experiencing more compassion for myself. The way to experience that compassion is to get yourself focused, get yourself on something, doing something, and then generally it will work out. The other thing, when you are concentrating on something else or when you are doing something else, uh, your mind can't be on what is wrong. And when you get your mind off of what is wrong, you get it on what is right. What is right is what expands. And what is wrong tends to go away. One of the most alarming insights I had was five years ago when my grandmother died. I was with her. She was 95 years old. And she was an hour from death. And she was admitted to the hospital about 2 o'clock in the morning. And one of the things that the hospital did was that they weighed her for some reason. They had to have, you know, they're into their, their records and keeping track of things. It's, you don't get into heaven if you don't have a weight certificate. And maybe if you excess baggage, you don't get in or something. I don't know what they're thinking is. But there's this kind of linear, uh, all this record keeping. I always wonder about all the people who died before we had records, before we did that. You know, whatever happened to all of them. And so she weighed 133 pounds when she entered the hospital. And, she, and we all knew that she was very close. And then life passed from her body. I mean, we watched as life literally uh, left her body. And there she was. There was this package of, uh, it was getting cold and stiff, and it was like this package of bones and stuff, matter. And it certainly wasn't my grandmother. That package there that was now deteriorating and going to be gone. And when they weighed her for the death certificate, she weighed 133 pounds. <laughs> exactly the same so that whatever it is that constituted her life her very life her very essence 
is invisible and weightless. You can't weigh it. And that's true for you. That's true for every single one of us. That what our life really is all about, it defies the world of form. It defies the world of linear. And yet we spend almost all of our energy and our time here in this part of our consciousness, in form, believing that this is who we are. When you learn to go into your mind, when you learn that your mind is really a place <laughs> that you can visit and exquisitely touch the face of God, you can remove the tension and stress and everything else that's troublesome in your life when you give yourself time to experience your true humanity. You know, John Quincy Adams sat in the White House. He was our sixth president, and he was the most spiritual man who ever sat there, I think. He was a man who rejected slavery while other people, including one of his best friends, Thomas Jefferson, practiced it. He was a man who was highly spiritual and very intellectual, perhaps the highest intellect of anyone who ever was there. And this is what he wrote about himself three days before he died in a letter to Thomas Jefferson. He used his house as a metaphor for his body. And this is really the message of, of what I have to say here today. He said, John Quincy Adams is well. But the house in which he lives at the present time is becoming dilapidated. <laughs> it's tottering on its foundations. Time and the seasons have nearly destroyed it. Its roof is pretty well worn out. <laughs> I can identify with that one, I'll tell you. Its walls are much shattered and tremble with every wind. I think John Quincy Adams will have to move out of it soon. But he himself... He himself is uh, quite well, quite well, thank you. <laughs> that concept of understanding that universal intelligence that is a part of our consciousness is not just something for mystics and uh, people to uh, go in loincloths and contemplate in caves. It's for us. It's for every one of us in the practice of our daily lives in whatever business we're in. had a hair on the pillow the other morning. I held it up to my wife. I said, honey, what held it in yesterday? <laughs> Something did. <laughs> it's invisible. In our culture, particularly in the West, we have a tendency to believe that this is who we are. And we decorate our form, and we perfume it, and we insure it, and we build a house around it, and we, <laughs> we mortgage that, and we, and, and we watch it, and we look in the mirror, and we say, oh my God, look at what's happening to it. And, and there's another wrinkle that wasn't there before, and how did that get there? And <laughs> It's completely out of your control. It's all handled for you. There's such a beautiful lesson to learn, such a beautiful spiritual lesson to learn. If you look at a vase and watch a sculptor, watch a sculptor make a vase, the sculptor shapes his clay and finishes it up. And what is it that makes it a vase? You think it's the material? You think it's the pottery? You think it's the clay? No. It's the empty, silent space inside that the clay surrounds that allows it to be a vase. Otherwise, it's just 
some pottery. <laughs> what makes this a room? What makes your house a house? Think about it. It's not the walls. It's not the material that has been put all around us that you live in. It's the space, the empty, silent space inside that makes a house a house. <laughs> it's the space between the bars that holds the tiger, as they say in Zen. And it's the silence between the notes that makes the music. It's not the note. Uh, that's the note. What makes the music is the silence between the notes. And so it is with you. Robert Frost put it this way, more beautifully than I could ever say it. We all sit around in a circle and suppose while the secret sits in the center and knows and knows. You must come in contact with that empty silent space that is within not the form that encapsulates it. So difficult for us in a world of bottom line, left-brained, analytical, get-to-the-point mentality that we find ourselves in. But all you have to do is look around. Look and understand that whatever the intelligence is that is in back of or suffusing all form in the universe that allows it to be that empty silent space that some call God some call spirit some call soul some call Muhammad some call Buddha some <laughs> the label doesn't matter and I am not up here on this stage to proselytize for any particular religious point of view at all it is not my purpose, it has nothing to do with what I'm here. It is to get you to understand the power of that invisible, silent, empty space that we all know as thought. The awakening process, the awakened life, what a wonderful notion that is, to be awakened. It's like uh, when you go to sleep at night and you're dreaming. The only way you know you're dreaming is to awaken. And it's a similar thing here, this awakened life business that we're talking about. When you wake up from this dream, this 80-year dream or 100-year dream, you begin to realize that the only way you know you're dreaming is to awaken. You want to create an awakening process where you really are looking back on the dream from a perspective of what is rather than what you think it should be or judging it. And there was a wonderful lady, wonderful lady. Some of you will have heard of her. Her name was Peace Pilgrim. 
and no one ever knew her real name. And Peace Pilgrim was this woman who was uh, in her 70s when she died, I believe. And she walked all across the country just promoting peace. She was a little old white-haired lady, and she would go on television and radio stations and just talk about how positive it could be, and then she would walk <laughs> to the next city and the next. There's a book out about her called Peace Pilgrim. And she had uh, in one of her little booklets something that I think is really an indication of the awakened life, a real indication that you're awakening. And this is just a real short list of what some of those things are. When you see yourself moving beyond that success, that performance, that achievement that so motivates your life, and begin to awaken to a new level, to a whole new level of experience. You'll see it this way. The first thing you'll notice is a tendency to think and act spontaneously rather than on fears based on your past experiences. In other words, you begin to trust and surrender and, and to have a sense of spontaneity about your life. And you're not always focused on... Uh, whether it's going to work out or not going to work out and be afraid if it doesn't and those thoughts are no longer you're no longer wanting those thoughts to expand in your life and then you'll notice an unmistakable ability to enjoy each moment of your life every moment becomes an exquisite part of your existence and you'll find yourself even in times when you used to think of them as boring or routine like Oh, maybe getting in an airport and being delayed for a couple of hours. You begin to find an unmistakable ability to enjoy that and to not judge it and to see it for what it is and to even be grateful for it, that you're not getting on a plane that wasn't supposed to leave at that time. You begin to see it that way. And you begin to enjoy the little things that we so take for granted, the moments with your children, you know, the... The times when there's chaos around and you think, oh my God, what, I'm never going to get through this. You suddenly can stop yourself in the middle of that and, and see the irony and the fun and the joy in it. And, and the quiet times and even driving back and forth to work. or You find yourself having this unmistakable new ability to enjoy every moment that you find in your life and to treat it all as a gift. It's a sign of the awakened life. You also find that the, you're developing a loss of interest in judging other people. You're off of judgment. You're moving beyond that. You understand the truth and the notion that you don't define other people with your judgments. You define yourself as someone who needs to judge. That each one of us is defined by our own thoughts and our own actions. And even those people who are behaving in ways that are antisocial and that are criminal and so on, you find yourself less judging them and more seeing them for what they are. Not saying that they shouldn't be held accountable and responsible, of course. But that judgment, that inner hostility, that inner anger toward them is replaced by a sense of wondering how could that little baby at one time who was in its mother's arms turn out this way? What created that? And I wonder if there's anything I can do to help eliminate that in other children rather than the judgment. You find a loss of interest in interpreting the actions of other people. You don't become this great interpreter for what everybody is and what everybody is doing. The awakened life beckons you to just sort of observe it, to note it, 
and even in your own behavior. You become less inclined to interpret it and more inclined to say that this is just an indication of where I am or where I am not at this particular moment and with no need to analyze it. You see, when you analyze something, analyzing is really a violent intellectual act. When you analyze something, you have to break it apart, tear it apart and break it open and find out every little piece of it. It's like intellectually violent. The opposite of analysis is what we call synthesis. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin talked about the universal synthesizer is love. You begin to see how everything fits together rather than analyzing every little bit of life and interpreting everything for people. You try to do less of that and more of seeing how we all fit together. The awakened life means a loss of confrontation. You're no longer interested in it. It just isn't important to you. It's like having to prove yourself and make a contest out of everything. It's just no longer there for you. The real sense of the awakened life behind that is that you don't have to make anybody else wrong. And you don't have to make yourself right. That's the real sense of awakening, when you begin to know that there's much more to life than uh, making a contest out of it. I noticed that when my little boy, who's two years old, goes out to play any place. The only reason that he does it is, is for fun. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't, go to, he doesn't try to win. He doesn't try to beat anybody. He doesn't try to confront anybody. He just goes out to play. And we lose that in the name of confrontation and conflict. I remember Tom Crum talking in his book, uh, The Magic of Conflict, about an example of if you were an adult and you went to a playground and you decided to sit down with a three-year-old and to make sandcastles. And you made all these beautiful sandcastles, and suddenly the three-year-old stood up and kicked your sandcastle over. What would you do with that? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't try to make him wrong and make yourself right, and you wouldn't have a fit about it, and you wouldn't scream, and you wouldn't holler, and you wouldn't say, how dare you do this such a thing, and be all upset about it, and, and I've made a contest out of it. You'd say, this is what three-year-olds do. <laughs> they knock over sandcastles, and it's just for play. You begin to develop that more of that sense that inside every one of us is a little two-year-old who wants to come out and play <laughs> and doesn't have to win and doesn't have to beat anybody and doesn't have to be in conflict or confrontation. That little child inside of you begins to surface when you start awakening. You lose the ability to worry. I didn't say you lose worry. You lose the ability to worry. It's no longer part of you. You begin to understand the absurdity of worry. You begin to see that it makes no sense to worry about the things that you have no control over. Because if you have no control over them, it makes no sense to worry about them. And then it makes no sense to worry about the things that you do have control over. Because if you've got control over them, it makes no sense to worry about them. And there goes everything that you ever worried about. You either have control or you don't. And if you don't, you move on. And if you do, you take control. As you awaken, you lose that ability to just worry about things and and instead accept them. You'll notice frequent overwhelming episodes of appreciation, <laughs> as she puts it. Frequent overwhelming episodes of appreciation. Appreciating everything, being thankful. It's one of the great ways to become awakened in your life, is to be thankful for everything and to give thanks for it. You know, I'd like to see the churches of America uh, have services on Sunday morning where they have, like, 
liver appreciation day you know like to appreciate your liver every Sunday and have an ode to the liver you know and a theology of the liver and how grateful we are for our liver and if we didn't have our liver imagine how, you know and then the next week is like you know the heart appreciation week it's like appreciate every little tiny thing that is a part of what it is that makes you alive your teeth your tongue your the air that you breathe the, the ionosphere the the atmosphere the ground the the sun, the stars. Uh, it's like you start having these overwhelming episodes of appreciation as you awaken. And you appreciate getting on a plane and having it take off and having it land and, and uh, having a seat and having someone to serve you a drink and being able to wear clothes and everything about your life. And as you become more aware of how much you have and how much you have to be grateful for, you become less focused on scarcity and what you don't have because your mind is focused on what you do have and when your mind is focused on what you do have what you do have expands you begin to develop contented feelings of connectedness with others and with nature you begin to see that every human being that you meet any place on the planet shares being human with you and what it feels like to be human you begin to see that there's a oneness to it all that there's a universal mind that you're a part of it and you know that each one of us is connected and that on a round planet we can't choose up sides, that you begin to know that, then you treat the people that you come into contact with with the same sense of reverence that you have for yourself because you are, in fact, that person. It's why Jesus said on the cross when the spear was thrown into him, forgive him, Father, for he knows not what he does. The reason he knows not what he does, he doesn't know that he's throwing a spear into himself because every time you hurt another human being, you hurt the generic human being. You hurt all of us. And every time you send out love, you create a sense of harmony in that being. You begin to have what she called frequent attacks of smiling. <laughs> you become more joyous, more merry, more contented as you awaken and get beyond all of this need to accumulate and perform and achieve which is all wonderful, but when you go beyond it, you begin to develop an increased susceptibility to the love extended by others, as well as the uncontrollable urge to extend it to others. Love becomes what you are, and you can't give away what you don't have, and you can only give away what you do have. And if what you have is love, then that's what you find yourself giving away. Those are the symptoms, the signs of awakening. Modern miracles of sound motion pictures and radio open up vast sources of entertainment and instruction. To benefit from these, we need our ears, which interpret for us the multitude of sound waves they receive. Let us always strive to protect and to preserve this most precious gift of nature. Always eager to help you enjoy that gift, this is CJUM 101.5, broadcasting from the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Of Winnipeg's best root rockers team up for one of Winnipeg's best venues as the perpetrators and the Reverend Rambler play the 10th anniversary weekend at the Park Theater on Saturday, October 3rd. 
Whether it's the blazing blues of the perps or the hearty howls of the rev, each of these acts can hold a stage on their own. But for $20 advance tickets, you'll get the chance to see both acts in one evening. Tickets are available now at the Park Theatre, Music Trader, and online at Ticketfly.com. So get yours now and pull out your noisemaker to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Park Theatre with the perpetrators and the Reverend Rambler on Saturday, October 3rd. Proudly supported by 101.5 UMFM. Legendary troubadour Ron Sexsmith rambles into town on Thursday, October 1st to bring his latest album, Carousel One, to the warm environs of the West End Cultural Centre. Inspired by the likes of Roger Miller and nostalgic folk pop, this is an album that finds Sexsmith blending some genuine joy with his sardonic take on life. Advanced tickets are on sale now for $32 plus fees and are available at Music Trader, the Folk Festival Music Store, the West End and online at Ticketfly.com. So get yours now and join Ron Sexsmith for a spin on Carousel 1, Thursday, October 1st at the West End Cultural Center. Proudly presented by 101.5 UMFM. And welcome back to the program. You're listening to Sacred Space here in CJUM 101.5 FM at Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And we're sitting here this morning listening to Dr. Wayne Dyer's The Awakened Life. This is in uh, remembrance of the internationally renowned author and speaker who is in the field of self-development. He wrote more than 40 books, 21 of which became New York Times bestsellers created numerous audio programs and videos, and appeared on thousands of television and radio shows. Wayne held a doctorate in educational counseling from Wayne State University and was an associate professor at St. John's University in New York. His career spanned four decades, and he maintained a busy schedule hosting lectures around the world right until his passing in late August of last month. So, uh, yeah. Good journeys, mate. So let's get on to, uh, and I think, again, this one just fits. Uh, This is The Awakened Life, read and by Dr. Wayne Dyer. Enjoy. Presented by Peace Pilgrim with my editorial comments. She was a beautiful lady. And I belong to that organization that promotes her ideas. The fact is that most of us in our culture define who we are and how well we're doing and even our very humanity on the basis of some very artificial criteria. Those criteria most of the time are considered by people in our culture to be the ultimate. And they are things like success, how much success do I have, that is, how much money am I making, how much stuff comes into my life, how many accumulations am I able to get. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But as a criteria for your very humanity, it's a very low point, it's a very shallow place to determine whether or not you're living the kind of life that you're capable of living. Another one is performance, which we tend to laud in our culture and to almost worship. I'm number one. You see it all the time, people making a contest out of life and 
performance being measured in terms of uh, how far I get and what position I achieve in life or what awards I have granted to me or whatever. And the other is achievement. How far have I gone in my profession? How am I looked at by my peers and by other people in terms of my grades and uh, my position on the ladder of success within a given corporation, things like that? These are almost like the ultimate in our culture, in the business world, in the educational world, in, uh, in the entertainment world, whatever. We're always talking about success, achievement, and performance. What has happened for me and what has happened for a lot of people, particularly in some of my recent books and tapes and so on, is that after you live this life for a while and you find yourself achieving a lot of things and performing at a very high level and being labeled a success by all of the external standards, you soon discover that there's an emptiness to that, that there's more to life than just being able to do that, that emptiness and that shallow feeling and that it's just sort of almost like a selfish pursuit, a gratifying one's ego and proving that we can accumulate as much stuff as we can and success isn't any longer measured in terms of how we serve others but in terms of how much I get for myself. And our goals become obsessions, not that we need any more, but that we've fallen into this trap of believing that we have to accumulate more, we have to get more, we have to perform at a higher level. If we win the uh, championship, that's great, but how about doing it two times in a row? <laughs> Nobody's ever done that before. And if we do it twice in a row, well, now we've got to do it three times in a row. And now we have to do it by shutting out our opponents completely. They can never get a point. And we are constantly looking outside of ourselves for... Uh, these kinds of almost artificial ways of defining ourselves as human beings. And when you get trapped into that, you find that there's a lack of a sense of fulfillment. And what I want to talk about and make happen in this program is to have people ask the question, what would it be like to live your life as a work of art? A work of art that's in progress. That is, your life becomes a masterpiece that is unfolding in every moment of your life. Instead of looking at it in terms of how much can I get or how far can I go, begin to see that, all right, yes, I am capable of lots and lots of, uh, of wonderful things, and I have accumulated a lot of things, and I've achieved at a very high level, and I'm performing very well, but I want to take a different perspective on what my life is. And I want to begin to see my life as this fabulous work of art that I can shape it and shade it and mold it into whatever it is that I think would be the absolute ideal for my contribution while I'm here on this planet, for the actual unfolding of my humanity. And if you were to ask anybody, what is it that you would really like to have said about yourself? Whose life would you uh, look at and say... This is what I would like to have uh, been said about me. Or this is the masterpiece that I would like my life to be. Would it be about how much stuff did I get? Or how big was my bank account? Or, or how fast did I run? Or how quickly did I get there? Or who did I beat in the process? For some, it might be, and that might be very satisfying. But on a very high, a much higher level than that, the answer to that question for me is in looking at the lives of people like Christ, who was perhaps the most influential person ever to live on our planet, ever to be on our planet. Mohammed, 
Buddha, spiritual masters who were leaving a message about the power of the human mind. More recently in our times, people like Gandhi, who was able to turn around the whole fate of a nation that had been subservient to an empire, the British Empire, all through a nonviolence and all through a, uh, an approach to loving people and not making conflict something that has to be debilitating or destructive and to literally put them on a course of running their own lives all through simplicity and all through a sense of beauty and appreciation. Or Mother Teresa, who labors in the streets of Calcutta, just serving and just giving, and knows what she is for, and knows that she's not against anything. You see, the irony, there's a real irony in all of this, and, and I'm not here to put down, in any sense of the word, success, and performance and achievement. I'm a person who has a lot of all of those things in my life. But I've found that those are the kinds of things that begin to matter less and less. And they show up more and more in your life when you find yourself getting more tuned in to something much beyond all of that. It's like a knowingness. It's like creating a sense of what I'm here for, how I'm going to live this life that I have, and doing it in the service of others, Maintaining a sense of spirituality about yourself, maintaining a sense of compassion and caring and love and decency for uh, everyone that you meet, treating conflict and difficulties that come your way not as something for which you have to win or to master, but in fact as opportunities for you to see how you can transcend these things and not to have to use hatred and, and anger and bitterness and beating somebody else down in order to get to this higher place. It's very much a place of peace, and it doesn't mean like abdicating your role in life. It doesn't mean that you can no longer be an architect or that you can't be a salesman or whatever it is that you choose to do for a living. It has, it's much beyond that. It's the way that you are, not what you're getting out of the way that you are. It's that wonderful work of art that your life becomes, that you begin to see that I can make my life unfold exactly the way the universe unfolds with a real sense of perfection and harmony and peace for myself. And the more I do that, the paradox is that all of the things that I chased after so, so hard and so diligently show up in your life in just the right amounts. It's an attitude of knowing. We are witnessing an awakening that is being influenced by spirit and nature. Nature's been waiting for this moment for us to come together and become unified in our unique and distinctive ways as one human family. When we put ourselves in order, the universe and the earth will naturally set things in balance. The indigenous drums of the world are sounding together.
for the need for change. The way we treat this earth, following the natural laws that show respect for her. Resisted acts to remove us from the love we have for the land. The land that gave us life and peace. The land that gave us Were signed, our people brought them gifts. Shake a pipe, drawn the rattle things that our elders gave. We're signed to share this land. A pact was once agreed. Forgive mistakes that were made for the land on which we breathe. And we say, yeah, 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 Death. 
In your totality, you're an infinite being disguised as a person existing in the world of sharp edges and twisted knots, as this verse refers to. Coalescing within and around you at all times is the invisible, life-giving force of the Tao. It is inexhaustible. It is bottomless. It cannot be depleted. This fourth verse of the Tao invites you to consider rearranging your thoughts about who you are. It seems to be saying that cultivating an awareness of the infinite aspect of yourself is the way to tap into the limitless source of creative energy that flows through you. For example, you may want to help some less fortunate people improve their day-to-day -day existence, but you don't believe that you have the time or the energy to do so because of who you are and what you're presently doing. As you relax your hold on the idea of yourself as the job you do or the life you're living and seek to acquaint yourself with the limitless creative energy that's a part of you, the time and energy you require will appear. Imagine yourself helping others, guided by the infinite aspect of yourself, will generate behavior and actions that complement your vision through the common ancestor of the Tao. Ultimately, you'll cultivate an absolute knowing that whatever assistance you need is right here and right now, in front of, in back of, above, and below you. It is empty, yet very much present. It is, as Lao Tzu reminds you, inexhaustible, bottomless, the ancestor of it all. Awareness of the omnipresence of the Tao means that thoughts of shortages or lacks aren't prevalent. Beliefs such as, there's no way this will happen, it's not my destiny, or with my luck things could never work out, cease to be entertained. Instead, you begin to expect that what you imagine for yourself is not only on its way, it's already here. This new self-portrait based on the cooperative presence of the invisible Tao elevates you to living an inspired life, that is, one of being in spirit or in unending touch with the Tao. When you live infinitely, the rewards are a sense of peaceful joy because you know that all is in order. This is what I imagine Lao Tzu's ancient words mean in our modern era. First, consider all things that seem to be a problem from the perspective of the eternal Tao. Believing that there's a shortage of prosperity is a signal to think in terms of the inexhaustible source, the Tao. Just like everything else on our planet, money is available in limitless qualities. Know this and connect to the bottomless supply. Do it first in your thoughts by affirming, everything I need now is here. Prosperity thoughts are energetic instructions to access your infinite self, so actions will follow them. Take this same approach, staying in harmony with the Tao, to all of your problems, for there's an all-encompassing supply of well-being to partner with. So rather than giving energy to illness and perceived misfortunes, stay with the Tao. Stay with what can never be used up. Stay with that which is the father of all things, the creative source of it all. It will work with and for you, as you have it in your thoughts, then in your feelings, and finally, in your actions. And secondly, be an infinite observer. When acknowledged as a sign of change, worry is transitory. It's simply part of the world of the changing. If you view your life from the vantage point of an infinite observer, concerns, anxieties, and struggles blend into the eternal mix. From this ageless perspective, picture how important the things you feel depressed about now will be in a hundred, a thousand, a million, or an uncountable number of years. Remember that you, like the infinite Tao from which you originated, are part of an eternal reality. 
Rearrange your thoughts to practice thinking in alignment with the Tao. With the assistance of the eternal Tao, all of the sharp edges of life smooth out, the knots loosen, and the dust settles. Try it. Do the Tao now. Pick a situation today. Any situation will work. And instead of verbally responding, be silent and listen to your thoughts. For example, in a social gathering or business meeting, Choose to seek the emptiness found in silence in order to be aware of your infinite self. Invited to let you know when or whether to respond. If you find your worldly ego interpreting or judging, then just observe that without criticizing or changing it, you'll begin to find more and more situations where it feels peaceful and joyful to be without response, just to be in the infinity that's hidden but always present. You might want to duplicate this advice of my teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, and post it conspicuously so that you can read it daily, as I do. Quote, Wisdom is knowing I am nothing. Love is knowing I am everything. And in between the two, my life moves. Unquote. And while you're living, stay as close to love as you can. Fifth verse of the Tao Te Ching. Quote, Heaven and earth are impartial. They see the ten thousand things as straw dogs. The sage is not sentimental. He treats all his people as straw dogs. The sage is like heaven and earth. To him, none are especially dear, nor is there anyone he disfavors. He gives and gives without condition, offering his treasures to everyone. Between heaven and earth is a space like a bellows, empty and inexhaustible. The more it is used, the more it produces. Hold on to the center. Man was made to sit quietly and find the truth within. Unquote. Living impartially. The Tao does not discriminate, period. Like heaven and earth, it is impartial. The Tao is the source of all, the great invisible provider. It doesn't show preference by giving energy to some while depriving others. Rather, the basic life-sustaining components of air, sunshine, atmosphere, and rain are provided for all on our planet. By choosing to harmonize our inner and outer consciousness with this powerful feature of the Tao, we can realize the true self that we are. The true self is our unsentimental sage aspect that lives harmoniously with the Tao. This aspect doesn't view life in one form as more deserving than another, and it refuses to play favorites. Or, as Lao Tzu states, he treats all his people as straw dogs. Lao Tzu uses this term to describe how the Tao, as well as the enlightened ones, treats the 10,000 things that comprise the world of the manifest. In Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Tao Te Ching, he explains that straw dogs were ritual objects venerated before the ceremony, but afterward abandoned and trampled underfoot. In other words, Taoism reveres and respects existence impartially as an ebb and flow that is to be revered and then released. With impartial awareness, the sage genuinely sees the sacredness within all the straw dogs in this ceremony we call life. This fifth verse encourages us to be aware of this unbiased source and, as a bonus, to enjoy the paradoxical nature of the Tao. The more rapport we have with the energy of the Tao and the more we're living from its all-creating perspective, the more it's available to us. It's impossible to use it up. If we consume more, we simply receive more. But if we attempt to hoard it, we'll experience shortages ourselves, along with the failures of having even a wisp of understanding. The Tao and its inexhaustible powers paradoxically disappear 
when we attempt to exclude anyone from its unprejudiced nature. The varied forms of life are illusory, as far as the Tao is concerned, so no one is special or better than anyone else. This sentiment is echoed in the Christian scriptures, quote, God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Matthew 5.45, unquote. Practicing impartiality is a way to incorporate this fifth verse of the Tao Te Ching into your life and to practice its wisdom in today's world. To that end, this is what I believe Lao Tzu was trying to impart to us from his 2,500-year-old vantage point. First, stay in harmony with the impartial essence of the Tao in all of your thoughts and all of your behaviors. When you have a thought that excludes others, You've elected to see yourself as special and therefore deserving of exceptional favor from your source of being. The moment you've promoted yourself to this category, you've elevated your self-importance above those whom you've decided are less deserving. Thinking this way will cause you to lose the all-encompassing power of the Tao. Organizations, including religious groups, that designate some members as favored aren't centered in the Tao. No matter how much they attempt to convince themselves and others of their spiritual connection, the act of exclusion and partiality eliminates their functioning from their true self. In other words, if a thought or behavior divides us, it's not of God. If it unites us, it is of God. Stay centered on this Tao that resides within you, Lao Tzu advises, and you'll never have a thought that isn't in harmony with spirit. And secondly, offer your treasures to everyone. This is what the Tao is doing at every moment, offering to all the entire spectrum of creation. Think of this as a simple three-step process. One, eliminate as many judgments of others in your thoughts as possible. The simplest, most natural way to accomplish this is to see yourself in everyone. Remember that you and those you judge share one thing in common, the Tao. So rather than viewing appearances, which are really nothing more than straw dogs, see the unfolding of the Tao in those you encounter, and your criticisms and labels will dissolve. And two, remove the word special from your vocabulary when you refer to yourself or others. If anyone is special, then we all are. And if we're all exceptional, then we don't need a word like that to define us, since it clearly implies that some are more favored than others. And three, Finally, implement the third step of this process by extending generosity through living the Tao impartially and connecting with the inner space of being the Tao. In this space, you'll be able to be unbiased about your possessions, recognizing that they're not exclusively yours, but are rather a part of the entirety. By unconditionally sharing and giving, you'll thrill at the experience of living the Tao and being unprejudiced. The Tao is your truth. It resides within you. Quietly be in the peace and joy of connecting with the inexhaustible Tao. Do the Tao now. As many times as possible today, decide to approach interactions or situations involving other people with a completely fair mindset, which you allow and trust to guide your responses. Do this as often as you can for an entire day with individuals, groups, friends, family members, or strangers. Create a short sentence that you silently repeat to continuously remind yourself that you're approaching this situation with an unbiased attitude, such as, Guide me right now, Tao, Holy Spirit, guide me now, or Holy Spirit, help us now. Keeping this brief sentence on a loop in your mind will prevent judgment from habitually surfacing. But even more appealing is the feeling of relaxation and openness to whatever wants to happen in those moments of impartiality.
sixth verse of the Tao Te Ching. Quote, The spirit that never dies is called the mysterious feminine. Although she becomes the whole universe, her immaculate purity is never lost. Although she assumes countless forms, her true identity remains intact. The gateway to the mysterious female is called the root of creation. Listen to her voice. Hear it echo through creation. Without fail, she reveals her presence. Without fail, she brings us to our own perfection. Although it is invisible, it endures. It will never end. Unquote. Living Creatively In this sixth verse, Lao Tzu refers to an eternal and indescribable force of creation that continuously gives birth to new life. He tells us that this mysterious female energy continually reveals itself in perfection, and he invites us to an awareness of that voice of creation echoing throughout life in a myriad of ways. Living creatively is how I describe existing with a conscious awareness of the presence of this feminine principle. This mysterious female is always birthing, and the Tao Te Ching speaks of the gateway to her as the root of creation. It's telling us that we have the ability to tap into this unlimited field and co-create, or as I've said, live creatively through the Tao. The never-dying formative energy is both our heritage and our destiny, functioning whether we're conscious of it or not. What awareness accomplishes through practicing the Tao is to let us participate in the process, which in turn leads us toward the wholeness that is our ultimate earthbound task. Although his writings are almost 3,000 years old, Lao Tzu is offering 21st century advice here with a message that's as timeless and never-ending as the Tao itself. Words may change, but be assured that the feminine energy can and will bring you to your own perfection. If you choose to be aware of the inherent creativity that resonates deep within you, where the invisible Tao sings the loudest, you'll assist the birthing of new ideas, new accomplishments, new projects, and new ways of understanding your life. In Deng Ming Dao's 365 Dao Daily Meditations, the divine feminine energy is equated with the sound of birds soaring and gliding over a vast landscape. Quote, You can feel this in your life. Events will take on a perfect momentum, a glorious cadence. You can feel it in your body. The energy will rise up in you in a thrilling crescendo, setting your very nerves aglow. You can feel it in your spirit. You will enter a state of such perfect grace that you will resound over the landscape of reality like an ephemeral bird song. When Tao comes to you in this way, ride it for all that you are worth. Don't interfere. Don't stop. Don't try to direct it. Let it flow and follow it as long as the song lasts. Follow. Just follow. End quote. Here are some thoughts for living creatively. First, know that you are a divine creation birthed not by your parents, but by the great spiritual divine mother, the Tao. When you're in touch with the energy of your origin, you offer the world your authentic intelligence and talents and behaviors. You're co-creating with the you that originated in the Tao and the very measure of your essence. The Tao is not confused about what to create and how to go about it, as this is your legacy from the mysterious feminine. Listen to your inner callings. Ignore how others might want to direct your life energies. And allow yourself to radiate outward what you feel so profoundly and deeply within yourself. 
There is a reservoir of talent, ability, and intelligence inside of you that's as endless and inexhaustible as the Tao itself. It must be that way because you are what you came from, and where you came from is this all-encompassing, endlessly creative Divine Mother, the mysterious feminine of the Tao. Whatever you feel within you as your calling, whatever makes you feel alive, know in your heart that this excitement is all the evidence you need to have your inner passion become reality. This is precisely how creation works, and it's that energy that harmonizes with the Tao. And secondly, be creative in your thoughts, in your feelings, and in all of your actions. Apply your own uniqueness to everything you undertake. Whatever you feel compelled to do, be it write music, design software, do floral arrangements, clean teeth, or drive a taxi, do it with your unique flair. Being creative means trusting your inner callings, ignoring criticism or judgment, and releasing resistance to your natural talents. Re-listen to this sixth verse, paying particular attention to these words. Without fail, she reveals her presence. Without fail, she brings us to our own perfection. Then choose to let go of the doubt and fear you've harbored within you regarding your capacity to harmonize with the creative power, a power that's not only greater than your individual life, but is life itself. As the great 14th century Sufi poet Hafiz reminds all of us, quote, Just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. For your separation from God, from love, is the hardest work in this world. Unquote. When you reconnect to your Divine Mother, you'll be living creatively. You will, in fact, be living the Tao. Do the Tao now. Today, notice babies and small children. Look for the mysterious feminine nature in little boys and girls who haven't yet become so attuned to cultural and societal demands that their true selves are hidden. Can you see some whose inherent nature is intact? Notice what seems to be their natural character or their gift from the Tao. Then try to recall yourself as a child when the natural, Tao-given self was unaware of the ego self, the time before you believed that acquisitions or power were important. Who were you? Who are you now? Yes, today, spend a few moments with a young child and contemplate his or her connection to the Tao and how it unfolds perfectly without any interference. Seventh verse of the Tao Te Ching. Quote, Heaven is eternal. The earth endures. Why do heaven and earth last forever? They do not live for themselves only. This is the secret of their durability. For this reason, the sage puts himself last and so ends up ahead. He stays a witness to life, so he endures. Serve the needs of others, and all your own needs will be fulfilled. Through selfless action, fulfillment is attained. Unquote. Living Beyond Ego The opening line of this seventh verse of the Tao Te Ching is a reminder that the Tao, the source of heaven and earth, is eternal. By extension, the original nature of life is everlasting and enduring. There is a quality that supports this durability, and that quality responds when we live from our Tao center rather than from our worldly ego center. Identifying exclusively with the physicality of life and basing our existence on acquiring and achieving things disregards our infinite nature and limits our awareness of downness. In such a finite system, it therefore seems logical to strive for possessions and accomplishments. Being civilized in most cultures primarily constitutes being consumed with attaining success in the acquisition of power and things, 
which supposedly will provide happiness and prevent unhappiness. The primary idea is of a self who's a separate being in a separate body with a name and with cultural and biological data that are similar in values and patriotism to others. The Tao, particularly in this seventh verse, is suggesting that we update those notions and choose to exist for more than ourselves or our tribe, that is, to radically change our thoughts in order to change our lives. Lao Tzu says the secret of the ineffable nature of the eternal Tao is that it isn't identified with our possessions or in asking anything of its endless creations. The Tao is a giving machine that never runs out of gifts to offer, yet it asks nothing in return. Because of this natural tendency to live for others, the Tao teaches that it can never die. Giving and immortality, then, go hand in hand. The sage who grasps this everlasting nature of the Tao has gone beyond false identification with the ego and instead has a living connection to the Tao. This person puts others first, asks nothing in return, and wholeheartedly serves. In this way, the sage lives the ultimate paradox of the Tao. By giving without asking, he attracts everything that he's capable of handling or needing. By putting himself last, the sage ends up ahead. By putting others before himself, he endures, just like the Tao. The sage emulates the natural philanthropy of the Tao, and all of his needs are fulfilled in the process. The ego is a demanding force that's never satisfied. It constantly requires that we seek more money, more power, more acquisitions, more glory, more prestige to provide the fuel that it thinks it must have. But living a Tao-centered life rather than an ego-centered one removes us from the rat race as it offers inner peace and satisfying fulfillment. This is what I believe the wisdom of this verse of the Tao Te Ching is saying for the 21st century. First, make an attempt to reverse ego's hold on you by practicing the Tao's teaching to serve the needs of others and all your own needs will be fulfilled. Generously thinking of and serving others will lead to matching your behaviors with the perpetual rhythm of the Tao. Then its power will flow freely, leading to a fulfilling life. Ego wants the opposite, however, as it tells you to think of yourself first and get yours before someone else beats you to it. The main problem with listening to ego is that you're always caught in the trap of striving and never arriving. Thus, you can never feel complete. As you reach out in thoughts and behaviors, you activate loving energy, which is synonymous with giving. Put others ahead of you in as many ways as possible by affirming, I see the sacred, invisible source of all in its eternal state of giving and asking nothing in return. I vow to be this too in my thoughts and in my behaviors. When you're tempted to focus on your personal successes and defeats, shift your attention in that very moment to a less fortunate individual. You'll feel connected to life as well as more satisfied than when you're dwelling on your own circumstances. Imagine what it would be like if you dismissed ego's hold on you, serving others, and watching how all that you give returns to you tenfold. The poet Hafiz expresses this attitude perfectly. Quote, Everyone is God speaking. Why not be polite and listen to him? Unquote. And secondly, stop the chase and be a witness. The more you pursue desires, the more they'll elude you. Try letting life come to you and begin to notice the clues that what you crave is on its way. 
You're in a constant state of receiving because of the ceaseless generosity of the eternal Tao. The air you breathe, the water you drink, the food you eat, the sunshine that warms you, the nutrients that keep your body alive, and even the thoughts that fill your mind are all gifts from the eternal Tao. Stay appreciative of all that you receive, knowing that it flows from an all-providing source. Stop the chase and become a witness. Soothe your demanding habits by refusing to continue running after more. By letting go, you let God. And even more significantly, you become more like God and less like the ego with its lifetime practice of edging God out, E-G-O. Do the Tao now. Be on the lookout for ego demands for an entire day. Decide to diffuse as many of them as you can comfortably, perhaps by assigning them an intensity grade. Living beyond ego situations that are easy to accomplish gets a low number, while those requests that are difficult to quell get a higher number. For example, let's say that your mate drives right on by or you watch him or her take a different route than you ordinarily do. Silently witness the degree of discomfort with your decision not to say anything. Did ego let you know its preference? Or if you have a conversational opportunity to display your specialized knowledge or describe a situation where you were the recipient of honor or success, note how uncomfortable your decision to remain quiet felt. Again, did ego let you know its preference? As Lao Tzu says in this verse, quote, Through selfless action, fulfillment is attained. By holding back ego's demands, even for a few moments, you'll feel more and more fulfilled, unquote. That's the message of this verse of the Tao Te Ching. Eighth verse of the Tao Te Ching. Quote, The supreme good is like water, which nourishes all things without trying to. It flows to low places loathed by all men. Therefore, it is like the Tao. Live in accordance with the nature of things. In dwelling, be close to the land. In meditation, go deep in the heart. In dealing with others, be gentle and kind. Stand by your word. Govern with equity. Be timely in choosing the right moment. One who lives in accordance with nature does not go against the way of things. He moves in harmony with the present moment, always knowing the truth of just what to do. Unquote. Living in the flow. The Tao and water are synonymous, according to the teachings of Lao Tzu. You are water. Water is you. Think about the first nine months of your life after conception. You lived in and were nourished by amniotic fluid, which is truly unconditional love flowing into you, flowing as you. You are now 75% water, and your brain is 85% water, and the rest is simply muscled water. Think about the mysterious, magical nature of this liquid energy that we take for granted. Try to squeeze it, and it eludes us. Relax our hands into it, and we experience it readily. If it stays stationary, it will become stagnant. If it's allowed to flow, it will stay pure. It does not seek the high spots to be above it all, but settles for the lowest places. It gathers into rivers, lakes, and streams, courses to the sea, and then evaporates to fall again as rain. It maps out nothing, and it plays no favorites. It doesn't intend to provide sustenance to the animals and plants. It has no plans to irrigate the fields, to slake our thirst, or to provide the opportunity to swim, sail, ski, and scuba dive. These are some of the benefits that come naturally from water simply doing what it does and being what it is. The Tao asks you to clearly see the parallels between you and this naturally flowing substance that allows life to sustain itself. 
Live as water lives, since you are water. Become as contented as is the fluid that animates and supports you. Let your thoughts and behaviors move smoothly in accordance with the nature of all things. It's natural for you to be gentle, to allow others to be free to go where they're inclined to go, and to be as they need to be without interference from you. It is natural to trust in the eternal flow, to be true to your inner inclinations and stick to your words. It's natural to treat everyone as an equal. All of these lessons can be derived by observing how water, which sustains all life, behaves. It simply moves, and the benefits it provides occur from it being what it is, in harmony with the present moment and knowing the truth of precisely how to behave. What follows is what Lao Tzu might say to you based upon his writing of the eighth verse of the Tao Te Ching. First, when you're free to flow as water, you're free to communicate naturally. Information is exchanged and knowledge advances in a way that benefits everyone. Be careful not to assign yourself a place of importance above anyone else. Be receptive to everyone, particularly those who may not routinely receive respect, such as the uneducated or the homeless or troubled members of our society. Go to the low places loathed by all men and have an open mind when you're there. Look for the Tao in everyone you encounter and make a special effort to have acceptance, gentleness, and kindness course through you to others. By not being irritating, you'll be received with respect. By making every effort to avoid controlling the lives of others, you'll be in peaceful harmony with the natural order of the Tao. This is the way you nourish others without trying. Be like water, which creates opportunities for swimming and fishing and surfing and drinking and wading and sprinkling and floating and an endless list of benefits by not trying to do anything other than simply flow. And secondly, let your thoughts float freely. Forget about fighting life or trying to be something else. Rather, allow yourself to be like the material compound that comprises every aspect of your physical being. In The Hidden Messages of Water, Masaru Emoto explains that we are water, and water wants to be free. The author has thoroughly explored the ways in which this compound reacts, noting that by respecting and loving it, we can literally change its crystallization process. If kept in a container with the words love or thank you or you're beautiful imprinted on it, water becomes beautifully radiant crystals. Yet if the words on the container are you fool, Satan, or I will kill you, the crystals break apart, are distorted, and seem confused. The implications of Emoto's work are stupendous. Since our consciousness is located within us and we're essentially water, then if we're out of balance in our intentions, it's within the realm of possibility that our intentions can impact the entire planet and beyond in a destructive way. As our creator, the eternal Tao, might put it, water of life am I, poured forth for thirsty men. Do the Tao now. Drink water silently today, while reminding yourself with each sip to nourish others in the same life-flourishing ways that streams give to the animals and rain delivers to the plants. Note how many places water is there for you, serving you by flowing naturally. Say a prayer of gratitude for this life-sustaining, always-flowing substance. You don't have to get on a spaceship in order to find God. You just have to look deep within yourself. And I think the second thing that I would have told them is that in order to get to the next level, which he was promoting, you don't have to leave your vehicle. 
which is also what he was promoting, that it's possible to reach the next level in this vehicle because this is the time to honor this incarnation, to honor who you are and why you are here. And one of the great things that my uh, earliest teacher, Abraham Maslow, taught me was that there are really three things that separate out these highly functioning people that he called self-actualizers from the rest, of, uh, the rest of us in ordinary human awareness. He said the first thing is that these people are independent of the good opinion of other people. And as I studied these great contributors that I've written this uh, book of essays about, I found that every single one of them sort of marched to their own drummer, the music that they heard. Independence from the good opinion of others. The second thing he said is that these were people that were detached from outcome. That is, they didn't do what they did in their life in order to receive something for it. They weren't on outcome. They were in what we call process. They were just doing what they do because their heart told them, this is what your heroic mission is. This is what you're here for. And the third thing he said that separated these people out from ordinary human awareness is that these were people who had no investment in power or control over others. This wasn't what their life was about. That their life was much more about being on purpose and letting other people's opinions and how they dealt with things be something that others handled. And if you look at the people in the Heaven's Gate and the, the people who uh, belong to cults and so on, the, uh, they violated all three of those principles. Certainly they were not independent of the good opinion of others. That's what they lived for, was this charismatic leader's opinion. And certainly they were attached to outcome. They were headed towards a better one. And this leader, he, as he called himself, was someone who had great power and control over others. That's what, what his life was about. So that whenever I meet anybody who has an investment in power or control over me, or is more concerned with their outcome, or is more concerned with their good opinions, I know that I'm not with what I think of as an authentic person at this highest level. And these are qualities to really look at in your life. I remember when the, I had this explained to me when Maslow said, uh, when I asked him, what do you mean by self-actualization? He said, these are people who are independent of the good opinion of others. I said, well, that's what I'm going to do from now on. <laughs> I was 27 years old. I'm going to be independent of the good opinion of others. And he gave me this strange look. <laughs> and I immediately worried about what that look meant. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> And whether it would affect my grade, you know. <laughs> so getting to that place where you're independent of the good opinion of others. <laughs> Back in the, uh, in the 70s, in the late 70s and the early 80s, I was a regular on The Tonight Show. I did that show 30-some times, and uh, it was... Uh, about every three or four weeks I would go up there and, and do the show. And then I would go home and I had written this book uh, called Your Erroneous Sounds. And it was all about not worrying about other people's approval and all of these kinds of things. And I would go home and I would go on the show. And when you go on a show like that, 
uh, you have seven or eight minutes and you have to say something quick and something light and something funny if you want to get invited back. I would go on and I would tell a little joke or say something amusing or whatever and then I'd get home and I'd have five or six hundred letters from people from all over the country angry at me about um, what I had said and how I had said it and so on. So I used to think to myself, why do I let these things bother me? Because they did, and I would find myself, all of the nice letters, I would just set aside and say, that's nice, but the people that were saying something, I would want to defend myself to these people. And then I came across this wonderful letter that, um, that H.L. Mencken, who was a humorist at the early part of this century, um, had uh, copied, and, and, every, and he, he would write, he was like a, a modern-day Voltaire. You know, I mean, he just took on everybody. Or Art Buckwald would be another example of the, with this kind of a reporter in the, in the 20s. But he satirized everything. And he had written out in one of his columns to anybody who might send something critical to me, this is my response. <laughs> and he had done it in advance. And I thought it was so good that I had 5,000 copies of it. Mimeograph. This was before Xerox. <laughs> 5,000 copies of this thing mimeographed. And every time I would get back from doing The Tonight Show and I got a whole host of these letters, I would just seal 40 or 50 of those into an envelope and then just send them off all over the country. And I wanted to be a fly on the wall when they would open them up and read them, you see. Now, I'm far too spiritual today to do such a thing. <laughs> But the fact that I like to tell this says about, I think a lot about me. And here's what the letter said. I am sitting here in the smallest room in my house. Now you all know what room that is. With your letter of criticism before me. Soon it will be behind me. H. L. Mencken. I wouldn't do that today. But it's a great anecdote for talking about how to get yourself to this place in your life where you literally become independent of the good opinion of other people without having to, uh, to make them appear foolish. And what I want to speak about here is something that I call, uh, I've called in, in some of my writing and, and tapes and so on, manifesting. This idea of city uh, consciousness uh, or Christ consciousness is a, is a place in our lives where um, the definition of it that I like best is a definition that says that city consciousness is a consciousness in which there is an absence of a time delay between what it is you are thinking about and having it materialize on the physical plane. So in the New Testament, this is referred to as the gift of fish and loaves. Okay, so that when you want to feed somebody and you don't have any food around and you can't get to a grocery store, if you're living at this level of consciousness, you put your attention on food and you are somehow 
your energy connects with that food and it appears called materializing or manifesting or whatever now I'm not saying that here in this program when it's over you'll be able to put your attention on having a new BMW in your driveway when you get home and it'll be there although I'm not saying it won't happen my wife knows how to do this <laughs> So does yours. <laughs> I just follow her around saying, how do you do that?